I'm Richard Lannan, rides with Canon, and this is the Glazing Insider Industry Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Nozzle. The Nozzle team captures photos, videos and drone footage from locations across the UK to create content for your social media and case studies for your website. To find out more about Nozzle's pay-as-you-go and monthly packages, visit nozzle.media. Welcome to the podcast dedicated to the people of the glazing industry. In this episode, I talk with Ian McInnes, who is the founder of We Build Brand and McInnes Communications. In this conversation, Ian talks us through his fenestration journey, all the way from how it started to the position he's in today. So, without further ado, let's get started. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming on. How did you get into the fenestration world? Got to go back quite a few years now. Uh, Left university in 1992, joined Vika probably just before Christmas that year as a trainee stroke assistant accountant. So that was the, that was the first part of the journey. Went in with quite a few IT skills. So as well as doing my role in terms of the accounts department, production found out they had somebody that could do a lot of stuff with spreadsheets. So they sent me into production to, you know, rewrite production reports. So did all that. And then, yeah, one or two other departments asked me to come in and do some other projects. Marketing department said, can you come in and help us uh, do some data analysis and also work with the industry's first ever database which arrived on a three and a half inch disc from a company called Winderbase, right. um, which Mike Rigby was involved, you know, in the, in the early days. And nobody in the marketing department knew what to do with it. It was just a disc full of data. So that was that. Always wanted to get into marketing. Not an obvious way to do it through university because it wasn't necessarily the courses to do it at that stage. Super keen when I did work for my first boss was in marketing was Mark Rogers. So he offered me a job in there. That became a full-time role. Uh, my mum found a little clipping in the local paper to say, Lancaster University, we're doing postgraduate marketing. I thought, great, you know. So there I was thinking I've done my final bit of studying, going back at 25, 26, doing a diploma, postgraduate diploma. Started my master's, but didn't finish that because I ended up changing jobs and, you know, one or two other things. Uh, but went in, you know, learned it from an, an academic point of view and a practical point of view. Did my marketing professionals at the same time, because still living at home, so, you know, no, no wife, kids and all that sort of stuff. So I had a bit of spare time to do it. So threw myself into that. And that was the, uh, that was the beginning. But I mean, Vika was a great opportunity. It was a, it was a great business to be able to go into different departments. You start to understand, you know, how all the different departments interact, you know, it's finance, it's operations, sales, marketing, you know, customer service, production. So it was a great grounding in terms of business, really, which I think in later years helps you understand clients a lot more because you understand all the different processes within it rather than just going in as a marketing person thinking I've got an idea of a marketing plan, you know. So, so that's where it started off. Got approached, it was about 99, by a company, in, uh, an embryonic company in Bolton who were doing... Um, conserved roof systems. They wanted a marketing manager to come in and try and ignite the brand and, and grow it. We launched uh, K2 as a name. Right. You know, that's where it's quite rare for a marketing person to actually, you know, get the opportunity to create a new brand and all the assets that go with it. So we launched that and to launch it at the first uh, Glassics as it was, we wanted to make an impact. So I bought a climbing wall 
as you do. <laughs> so I bought an indoor climbing wall and we ran competitions, uh, you know, every day. If you can get across, obviously you can't climb upwards. If you climb across the wall without putting your foot down, you can win a promotional item, whatever. So we've got a hu- huge amount of, you know, press coverage from it. Great for launching the brand. And then we gave it to the local boys club in Bolton for them to use. Oh, nice. And we even paid for it to get it installed. It's the whole K2 thing. Climbing K2. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Like you know, it, it was a difficult mountain. There was a, a ultra famous market leader at that stage. Hugely, hugely dominant. You know, they were, they were on the stock exchange. So the, the whole idea was K2 was the hardest mountain to climb. So it all seemed to fit in, really, the more we started to look at it. And we're at the right place at the right time, as I have been with other client projects. You know, the conservatory market boomed. You know, it grew up to 300,000 units mm. per annum. So... When I left after four and a half years, the, as a as a business, as a group, we were touching uh, just over 50 million. And we wow. start off doing just over a million. Then we branched out into America, tried to do trade and some retail stuff in America. At the time I left, we were just doing a starting a project with uh, B&Q, which obviously didn't, go, didn't work out too well in the end, just because it's, you know, you're reducing your costs by three or four percent per annum and all the other penalties that were in. But I felt like, that was done, that stage was, you know, that stage was done. It was time to do something else. So had a few months off to try and get outside the industry and had a few interviews with a few other companies just doing something, you know, completely different, but still marketing related. But then realised that it's such a great place to be, great characters. Got you. That's yeah, you'd, once you've been, you know, that's it. You've got no chance of getting out. So worked uh, for Wenham for a short period of time, which is obviously down in, you know, Cheltenham, obviously where, where I live now, running the sales and marketing there trying to get that up and running we got it back into growth got it back into profit within the first sort of four to six months but really at that stage i wanted to go out and set my own marketing consultancy up you know i'd paid for all these agencies over the years and you know the standard of work was 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 good it was okay sometimes creatively it was very very good but there weren't the assets to actually and the communication plan to to drive it home i just felt there's a better way to do it you know, hopefully taking some market, you know, market knowledge with marketing knowledge, combining the two and then, um, and then launching it. So I had around a goal for the good friend of mine, Charles Fox. Um, he said, go and do it in. I thought, right, I'll go and do it. So I started that night, wrote a business plan, wrote it over the weekend, handed him a notice on the Monday, spoke to him Monday night, said, we've got out for a beer. I've, I've had him a notice in. First thing he said to me was, was a bit hasty, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that stays, in the, you know. So the, the notice was in. Yeah, that was that was it. I had to go and start thinking about finding, you know, finding some clients, some customers. Look at my own branding. You know how I was going to present myself to the industry. And get a press release out to the media to say this is what I'm doing. Go back through all the business cards I collated over the years, which I did. <laughs> had a whole drawer full. Went through, yeah, and you know that was it. Charles Fox is that Charles Fox Timber Windows? Yes. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say the that it's a name you don't forget. No, it's not. He he was he worked for uh, K two in in the US. So right. I used to go out there once twice a year. We used to look at what we we're doing, do marketing wise and everything. So yeah, he became a family friend. Came to a wedding and and everything. So so yeah, it was you know it was it was the right time to go and well, I, I felt the right time to go and launch and do something else rather than you know leaving one job and going to another for four or five years and then doing it again and doing it again. I thought you know pre you know pre family and everything else that the the time was to do it. You know, you didn't really need a fax machine at that stage and everything else that you need in terms of a big serviced office. So it was just a spare bedroom that I painted in the corporate colours 
just to just nice. to get myself in the zone. Still on brand, I like that. Still on brand. I yeah, I had that. a big big purple wall in my uh, in my office, you know, office bedroom. So, so I'm fascinated by the sort of the start of the journey of your own business. Um, with I've sort of compared this to a lot of companies out there or businesses when they start, if it's a factory or something like that, they've got to put a lot of money into actual the physical location. But when you're in a you're starting a business like yours you don't have those overheads, especially if you can work from a bedroom. And I feel you can put your money and resources into better things in a way, it's sort of building your business slightly differently. So did you did you start by, after calling everyone, were you sort of running your own marketing campaigns or was it just word of mouth and it sort of built that way? I just kept on, just kept on networking, you know, speaking to more people. I need to make sure you've got the basic setup. So yeah, you've got a limited company, you know, you've got a, um, you quickly wanted to get your web page into an actual website. So you you spent a lot of time getting all that stuff ready, even things like business stationery, everything else, making sure you had the right software to do stuff because you need to do your own accounts and some of your, you know, your statutory things like that. So make sure all the housekeeping was done and done properly. That's probably the background in sort of accounts in law that I've got that mm. we had to get all that, all that stuff done, you know, things like even client contracts and things, which, so yeah, your, your, your entry costs are not a lot. You know, it's all, it's, it's all sort of, you know, tech related. That's it really. And it's just a case after that of, of going after people, but you know, after I felt after so many years, I'd also met a lot of people on the way. Yeah. So one of the first calls was one of the, was to one of my biggest customers, uh, Bob Lee, the conservatory factory down in Froome at the time. So Bob, I've left. I'm, you know, this is what I'm doing. Uh, just thought I'd let you know. He said, "Oh, why don't you come see me?" So I went to go and see him. Drove down, so came away with about three days, three days a month. So that was great. Got three days a month, twenty days a month, one day for admin one or two days for admin and the rest I needed to, to fill, you know, so spoke to some of the editors, spoke to more people. They put me in contact with more people. It just shows what a great industry we've got. Yeah. You know, um, there's a reason why people don't leave because it is, it is actually quite a good place to be. So just use, just networking and the people I spoke to then realized what I was trying to do. So they were being quite helpful, you know, so that was, um, so that was quite nice. 17, 17 and a half years ago. I was going to say, how long so, How long has it been now? And when, yeah, long, long so time. What year was, because you're talking about websites. So that was quite early, you know, to, to be having a website as well. You were up, up I suppose you had to be. Yeah, you, you've got to, you've got to, you know, you've got to show that you're, you're there with, the, you know, the latest, you know, thinking in terms of marketing and brands and everything else. So, you know, I make sure I get copies of things like Marketing Week. I was reading that and obviously reading all the industry press. I was making sure that every, every copy of every magazine would arrive, you know, each month and everything. So I was keeping abreast with things, you know, and even, even, even trends within the industry, you know, we spoke about, you know, conservatories before, but that had the the four or five year window where, you know, the, the brands get in early, you know, we really do reap the rewards at the end of that four or five year journey. You know, we've seen that thing, you know, things with, you know, composite doors and now we've got integrated blinds and, you know, the whole renaissance in terms of aluminium and everything else. Everything seems to have a have a, a window that's so long. Heritage windows, you know. So, so yeah. So that's that's how I sort of uh, started off. And then you, as your clients change and evolve, you get you get they start to ask you about other things. So they might ask you finance is probably not really related, but you know they might ask you about structure of the sales team, or you know, you know, can we can we do it a better way, or things like that. I've, run a couple of court cases before now in terms of trademark and patent infringements. Right. So you start dealing with lawyers and barristers. Um, 
but also mindful that you know the costs can run away. So your client's got an expectation that we need to get to the end of that journey and deal with the, the you know the, the implications of a court case and everything, but without a blank check. So that's where the accountancy bit comes in, and you get you know you make sure the you know the lawyers are costing everything properly and all that sort of stuff. And all of this is this experience that you've built up over the years, and doing yeah, it. you know, a great believer that you know we're all a sponge, aren't we? At the end yeah. of the day, you know, we're learning things. You know, you, you know, I see it with my own kids learning, you know, learning new skills, learning to ride a bike, or it's probably quite appropriate for me, you know, things like that. So, so yeah, I'm always, I'm always listening and learning from you know from what clients are doing, for what's happening in the wider industry. I think in doing that, you build up you build up all that knowledge. It's not necessarily about being clever; it's about storing that information and understanding. Can it be of use at a later stage? Until the grey stells start disappearing, perhaps in about ten years' time, they'll have to write a bit more down. Well, you've, I suppose, you've seen a lot over the industry then. So you've seen and helped create some big brands then. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I think some of it's timing. And it's the, you know, it's the, it's the clients that you work with. I'm super fortunate to work with some great businesses and some great people, you know, coming, for example, that's been 13 or 14 years. I did a lot of work with Solidor up to sale. That was a tiny, that was a tiny, very small business, but with a big vision from, from Gareth Mobley, you know, quite a few years ago, uh, turning over maybe one and a half, two million at the time. And I think when we, we got it to sale second time round, run rate was a million a week in terms of growth. So you go on that journey with a client that you do, you know, you do the PR, you make sure everything's on brand. Um, You generate momentum in the brand, um, which I think is quite an interesting concept because once you've got that momentum in the brand, the whole market's got an expectation that you're a leader, you're you're an influencer as well. So you're not only a spokesperson for your business, with the right tools, the right delivery, and the right timing, people can actually be spokespeople persons, people, I've got to be correct, uh, for the sector. So talking about the wider issues in terms of, you know, composite door performance, you know, and things like that. And, you know, even, you know, things like how much value a front door can add to a house. You know, we've seen all the property, you know, booms throughout COVID and everything. So that was an interesting journey. And you, you, you go along with that ride with the client and, you know, inevitably they'll ask you about, you know, other business issues because they know you've been to into other businesses with other challenges at certain stages. And then you, you learn from that, you store it and you use it again. So yeah, it's the, the business model is, is to work with clients for the long term. You know, I saw it with marketing agencies when I used to employ them that, you know, it used to, their expectation was that they'd only get the work from you for 18 months because either work wasn't good enough or the relationships weren't there. And there's that whole churn thing. So when I did set out to do it, it was to build a relationship with customers to take on, take them on a long-term journey, whatever the goals were, you know, some just wanted growth, others wanted growth to sale, but you know, you're there as a support network. So if the phone rings at half past six or seven o'clock on a Friday night, there's two ways of looking at it. You can say, oh, they phoned me up out of hours. But on the other hand is that they probably might, you know, they probably need your help. Yeah. And they trust you enough to be able to ring you out of hours because of the relationship that you've got. So you pick up the phone, it's a 10 minute phone call and, you know, 10 minutes later, you're back sipping your gin and tonic or your glass of wine. So it's quite a fluid, it's, it's quite a fluid thing. Sort of you saying about the 18 months with agencies, 
I sort of always saw that as, is it a nice way of getting in? I I think some people and some businesses are worried about long-term marketing and costs and things like that. So was that sort of a way of getting in and sort of thinking it's only for 18 months, we just got to be able to afford this for 18 months. Whereas you sort of looked at it, we're going to start now and you're never going to stop. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could have an element of shortism as an an accountant because, you know, you either make a profit or a loss, you've got to balance the books or everything. But, you know, the the whole classic thing when you, you know, you do all your studying for marketing and everything, they they talk about, you know, the long-term value of a brand. But once you start looking at the longer-term picture for your clients and things, then you can start breaking it down and saying, well, what do we need to achieve, not just this year, but normally with like an 18 uh, like an eighteen month window, so you might ha- you might have a budget for twelve months, but you've already got half an eye on perhaps what's happening in year two, because otherwise what you end up doing is you end up running a marketing campaign and it stops at Christmas, and then suddenly you've got to start it all up again. And if the if the if the values have changed over that period of time, then you know, you've got to adapt with it. I, th- I think the the point there is is understanding where the, the the business needs to be on a rolling, you know, eighteen month or even three year uh, program. You know, with several clients now we've got, you know, we've got we've got ideas where we need to be in three years, and then that's great for me because I can I can understand and start to look at that journey over three years, not just over twelve months. So, very much trying to get rid of too much short termism. That having been said, you still need an element short to short termism because you need effective social media among other things. So it's a balance, uh, mm. you know, I think. Also, as you're a branding expert, it'd be wrong not to ask, but I think most people understand how powerful a brand is. Where do people start or where should they start with branding? I think you should start within your business in many ways to understand who you are, what you do, and what your core competencies are. Because sometimes you can look with... Sometimes when you've, you've got a business, you've got all these different things going on, you don't always see it from an outside person's point of view because you, you need to make sure that, you know, you're operationally efficient. So your, you know, your OTIF levels are in excess of 98%. You know, the sales teams are doing what they're doing, 2.2 visits a day, you know, as, many, as, as little admin as possible. So you've got all these plates that you're spinning, but it's only when sometimes people looking from the outside need to strip everything back, dig a bit in the business and find out, you know, what it actually represents. Mm. I think if you can't understand it internally, you've got, it's a difficult challenge to communicate it externally, but also having understanding where you sit in the marketplace, you know, the different price points of different products. The whole branding thing is, I think is looking, is looking within to begin with. If you're part of a group, then obviously you've got group objectives that you've got to dovetail in as we do with, you know, coming Germany, but um, he's, he's looking within first before you can look out just understanding what your core competencies are. Have you got, you know, have you got product ranges that actually aren't uh, either low margin, low growth, whatever? It's the whole Boston Matrix thing about cash cows and stars and things like that. It's just getting a little bit of clarity, you know, within the business. Then it's a case of looking outside and saying, well, let's have a look at the marketplace. How much growth is there? Are there any dominant players? If so, you know, who are they? Start to understand the competition, what, you know, what they're doing, what they're doing well, what they're doing not so well. And then start to, you know, once you've got all those elements of information, then the, the rest of it will, the rest of it will come in. What, what do you think puts companies off starting or hiring someone like you? I mean, first thing to say, there's, there's, there's 
plenty of different types of business, you know, doing this within the industry. There's, you know, there's full service agencies, there's freelancers within my business. There's myself and Wayne, and then we've also got two part-time employees as well. So there's all sorts of different sizes of business that offer, you know, different types of services. But for anybody employing somebody on the, on the outside, I think it's, again, it's an understanding of what they, what they want out of it. Some people just want to do do some marketing, just want to make a little bit of noise, hmm. you know, and not much else. Others might have a little bit more of a strategic view and think, actually, in three years' time, I want to, you know, I want this business to have grown, you know, 35%. I want to improve the, you know, the EBITDA from, you know, 8 to 12%, 12 to 15 whatever. Or they want to position themselves, and if there's an expectation in terms of market growth, then they need to be ready in terms of the growth because they, that, again, goes back to the internal bit. If if the business grows thirty five percent, can they make it and deliver it, mm, and even yeah. do the invoicing? You know, or for more complicated things, on a roofing point of view, for them to make sure that they can actually process it all and support it technically and everything else that goes on. So, I think it's making sure that the the marketing person or the agency is very very closely linked to the client. I think if you don't have that, then the agency won't understand the client enough. And the marketing department will sit outside of the business, really. I think the whole challenge for external marketing agencies and people is to make sure you're actually an intrinsic part of the company. Yeah. You know, if I look at Conning, for example, you know, it's a 1 billion euro group. I know all, I know all the people in the marketing department in Germany. I know probably two or three of the technical people in Germany as well. Um, I know the owner. Um, in the UK, I know I know all the heads of de- department quite well. You know, even even likes of HR, I know the head of HR quite well. You know, Matt Jones, head of production, speak to him probably maybe once every six six weeks or so. Rob Long as well, because we're doing a massive show and refurbishment, so I know him. So it's knowing all these people, it's for them to know that I'm a, you know, I just happen to have an office somewhere else. Yeah. You know, I think it's made it a bit easy now that we're all, we're all started to understand this whole hybrid working concept. Yeah, it's been as close as you possibly can to the client. So I've never employed anybody on, up until now within the industry because I thought if I go and see a client and then some of the work gets handed down, then some of the knowledge and the expertise yeah. doesn't go with it or the message gets diluted. So I, I actually genuinely enjoy sitting in, you know, sitting in sales meetings sometimes with clients, you know, slightly outside a typical marketing remit, but you learn so much doing it. Mm. And they also see the value, hopefully, of what you're doing. Yeah. But it's that it's that relationship bit, you know, get as close and close as you can to your client, but also don't rest on your laurels. Mm. Yes. You know, I get I get up every morning and you over service, you over service. You know, it's it's all it's all about retention. You know, proof of that with your long-standing customers. Yeah, yeah. Hope, hopefully, <laughs> oh, that, I haven't found me out yet. I can talk my way out of it. Some way out of a fight or any conflict. Well, also you're fascinating because you're a numbers guy, but you're also a creative guy, and they don't normally go together, do they? Not normal. There's an argument to say I'm probably not. I'm probably not that good at both. I'm just somewhere, just somewhere in the middle. <laughs> the accounts degree is the obvious, obvious route to go because it wasn't really marketing at, at university, and it's it's damning, you know, good stead because I can look at anybody's company's accounts and see where that business is financially you know, within reason. So looking at, you know, the P&L balance sheets and all sorts of other stuff. Um, so that's, that's, that, that is very useful, but also understand it from an analytical point of view a little bit that 
you know, the, the days in the 80s and 90s when marketing departments were just a black hole in terms of cost, um, long gone. Everything's about being accountable. It's all about ROI. Speak to digital marketeers now. It's all about stats. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all about the numbers. You know, speak to a design agency from, you know, some of the ones I dealt with, sort of, you know, 15, 20 years ago in Manchester. It was all about trying to get a brand with the latest, you know, latest thought process in terms of colour for a brand it was a you know the whole joke about the marketing department was a colouring department yeah I heard that yeah you know which, which has been banded about quite a bit so it is far more far more analytical now because you um, you know digital media has, has taught us that we it, you know it's about metrics in terms of you know um, all the great stuff we can get out of Google all the stuff you can do on social media as well you know so you do some paid ads uh, you know, we do some paid advertising at the, at the back end of, of Twitter with some some list building. The the metrics we get out of there are, you know, great. You know, it shows you shows you exactly what you're doing when demographics. You know, it, it can even narrow it down to device. I think the only problem is that the more you analyse it, you're, you're at risk of making decisions on information that's information overload. Yeah. So you get past the stage where the information is useful, it becomes more just disruptive. Yeah, that, but that that does make sense though. Sort of linking that all in in the sense that you could see how the business runs and that's important, and then you can connect all the dots and you make sure it all works together. That that makes sense. Not not everyone has that that kind of knowledge, and I think you're right. There's talking to businesses about social media and things like that. Sometimes you sort of look, and you probably do the same thing. If a customer approaches you, you sort of you get a feel for their social and their profile, don't you? Just see what they're about and, and try to get a feel for them. And some of them absolutely horrible reviews and things like that and you have to sort of be honest and say look i don't think you should be spending any money on social media or marketing right now until you've got the systems in house right and get your customers or whatever's wrong fix that first then you can start shouting about your business again and and because they do see i think there's a few types of people but they get either they're really against marketing and they're, they're sort of they don't really get it they don't understand it they don't want to invest in it and that's them and they've done things their way and it, it could be working for them yeah. then you get the other ones that they think it's uh it could be a miracle cure and just say we need to like you say build up to 35 percent. but if you visit them and say your systems and structures won't allow for this you know, I can do everything right. It's not going to work, and it's sort of being that voice of the experience and, and putting the knowledge to them. I think the um, it's not a, it's not about sometimes being you know being clever about it. it it's it's trying to um, it's trying to pick away at the, at the layers within the you know within the prospective you know company that you might be working for is just to understand a little bit in great detail what is it they want to achieve, and where they're at as a business. Because again, it you know we've we've seen it in you know in, in years gone by where the, the agencies were, you know the age the eighties to nineties used to used to go in you know into Manchester or London where they used to go into these agencies full of uh, full of you know Apple computers it was before the iMac wasn't it, and we were all stuck with these archaic looking you know PCs looking at all these computers going wow these are amazing and they've all got you know offices with like glass tables and these incredible working environments and we're all mesmerised. You know, so that you got these huge bills from these agencies. It's like fine, you know, it's it's what everybody does. We go and spend all this money. We're just we're far far more more accountable to it now. So as, as an outsider coming in, there's been the expectation from other functional departments that you you're adding as much value, if not more, than a than a depart than a in-house department mm. because you're accountable as they are. 
you know, the, the head of sales is accountable, head of production, head of, you know, operations, head of finance, HR, they're all accountable. So probably even more so as an external resource, you, you know, you need to be accountable for what you do, which is then making sure that you, you know, you, you seriously over-service your clients and get up every day, like, you know, absolutely driven to do the best you possibly can each and every day. Again, perhaps that's me where I don't want to let go and start employing lots of people. Wayne, who I brought on, who joined on the 1st of December, I worked with him years ago on um, some ad campaigns and things like that. Fantastic headline writers. You know, he's, he's won awards for his work and everything. I was going to employ him for two days a week, doing some stuff more with me. And then I thought, do you know what, I'll, I'll just pull the pin here. I'll go and, and employ him. So, yeah. So uh, tw- 20, years, 20 years on, he's, you know, uh, from knowing him, he's, you know, he's joining. So having said I'd never employ anybody, I'm probably sound a bit like a hypocrite now. <laughs> so I've got somebody else in there. But he also knows the industry as well. So he certainly does not need his, you know, his, his hand-holding. Fantastic writer, but, uh, you know, understands the, the whole principles of business because he's done, you know, he's actually had his own agency before now. Right. So, um, so yeah, he's busy. Um, he's busy looking at what we're doing with clients and also challenging what we're doing as much as, you know, as much as I've ch- challenged clients over the years, he's challenging what we're doing as well, which is good because, you know, just because something's worked well nine months ago doesn't mean to say it's going to work now. So you're comfortable right now? You're not looking to grow anymore? Or it's sort of, no, it's, yeah. it's not really. It's the, 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 the whole sort of, Although, although it's changed having another person with it, within it, the idea is to have a relatively small number of clients that we hold on to yeah. and we get incredibly close to. And hopefully we go on a journey of, you know, growth and success. You know, endurance doors, um, that's probably about four years old now. They're absolutely flying. You know, for the last probably two and a half years, arguably been the fastest growing composite door company. That's not just a function of what I'm doing, but it's, it's everything within, within their business. They make a fantastic product now. They've got... A, they've got a very, very strong sales and marketing department as well. And we all work together incredibly well. You know, I speak to the owner, Stephen, probably once a month, not necessarily related to the the work that we're doing, but, you know, other bits and pieces, you know, within the business. So you, you have that relationship. You have a really good relationship with, you know, with your clients. It's this, it's this long-term journey. So that's just the way we do it. You know, that's just the way Wayne and I are, are going to carry on with the business, obviously on the, on the you know, slightly scaled up. You know, working with projects that we, we feel we can make a difference. You're about starting your business. Do you definitely feel like it was the right thing to do? You can't really say no, really. Okay, well, I'm an, I'm unemployable now. Um, <laughs> so that's the only downside to starting your own business. Um, you do get to that stage where you, you know, once it's your own business, particularly if you work on your own, you're very much task led. So you've got a certain amount of tasks that you have to achieve. However, you cut your day up, doesn't matter to a, deg- to a degree. You are task led, so if you've got to work, if you've got to work, uh, I've done work for Conning USA, and before now I've had to uh, be doing stuff ten, eleven o'clock at night. You know that's what you do hmm. you know, at the end of the day. Um, so, um, would I change it? No, I wouldn't. I thought it was the it was exactly the right time to do it. I've got a lot of great support, you know, you know, from people over the years. Um, like to Gary Morton, you know, he was at my he was at my wedding and supporting me in the early days, and obviously did a lot of. Stuff with GM fundraising with him as well over the years. So you end up with a network of people in this industry that you you all get along, you know, really well with. You know, which I think certainly helps. And talking about GM, are you a cyclist then? Yes. Well, yeah, I got roped in by Gary. He, he's um, 
you'll probably shoot me for calling me like an industry veteran. I'm, I'm probably heading that way now as well. Um, got roped into the, the first John O'Groats Land's End. Right. I put my hat in the ring and said, oh, you know, I might, I might you know, perhaps do a day or a, a day with you. He said, oh, yeah, just got to make sure you, you know, you're fit enough and everything. In the end, helped with training camps and just other bits of, you know, having been a, a semi-professional cyclist in my late 20s, uh, just like helping out, you know, a bit of coaching with stuff. And then there's me and Dave Broxton got involved in like looking at routes across Europe. So we did Rome to Oswestry. Wow. There was... There's been two trips across. There's been three trips in the US. Two that I, two that I've done. So I remember we did the we did the first, we did the first one, finishing at, um, in Atlantic City with very embryonic mapping software. It actually took us. Where did it take? It took us down an interstate. Oh wow! Uh, which is obviously highly dangerous coming out of uh, Eastern California. But not illegal. I think it was illegal. Oh, right, yeah. That's good. Um, so yeah, we had a few sort of you know mapping issues doing it. The RV the RV broke down on uh, the first or the second day. Oh no! So we had two we had two RVs. One of them broke down, and literally we'd left uh, a very wet Manchester to uh, arrive in Western California. I think it was San Diego, and they instantly rode up into the mountains and then dropped down into the Eastern California desert, which was like forty odd degrees centigrade. Oh. So at that stage, you've got a welfare issue with riders on the road. So everybody's, everybody had heart rate monitors. We had to know where the maximum heart rate was. And then they were given the ceiling that you can't go above that because you're going to end up fainting. Um, right. So you had heat exhaustion. And the the other thing you were getting as well, there's so much heat off the road, your feet were swelling. Oh, no. In your cycling shoes. So, um, so yeah, we did that one. Then we did, um, we tried to do as much of Route 66 as possible. So we finished at um, Santa Monica Pier and set off uh, from Chicago. Again, one of the, um, we thought the mapping software was a bit better. Uh, it took us down a route one day, which was supposed to be past a, a quite prestigious golf club. It was a uh, top secret military installation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you were, did you have guards come out? Yeah, we're expecting some of the riders to get shot. <laughs> Yeah, so I've done other things like that with Gary, you know, within the industry. And it's, it's always been, it was, it was a great thing to do socially, let alone all the good we were doing for Hope House. Mm-hmm. I think it's also nice that if you get really, you know, relatively successful doing what you're doing just to give back. So even within the business now, we, at Christmas, we sponsored quite a few of the homeless to have a meal and clothes and all that sort of stuff. We give uh, money to um, children's children's charities in Africa. We do some other outreach stuff to like lo- local charities around here. And even my wife set up a, a charity venture called Reach Out. Right. That's all to do with about getting funding for charities and community projects. So it's just about giving back, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, very nice. I think I think in the early years, there's an element of being, you know, you get sort of very selfish and very self-contained in terms of earning more money and racing the corporate ladder and all that sort of stuff and material stuff. But then you actually realize you've, we've, we've all got a role to play in, in giving a bit back. Yeah. It's inspiring. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we're doing stuff there. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Semi-professional cyclist. Yes. How did that happen? So were you paid? No, but I got a, I used to get a several thousand pounds worth of bike delivered from America each year. And did you? so it was sponsored uh, then. Yeah. So, yeah. What did I get? I used to get uh, sunglasses sponsor, all my energy drinks, bike chains, helmets, clothing. I had a near miss once when I 
sponsored by a clothing company in, in north of Britain doing cycling clothing, and they needed a lot of the photo shoot doing. So I got roped into uh, pencil ins having to turn up somewhere in, um, somewhere in Cheshire for a photo shoot to go into this catalogue, but it got cancelled because of the weather. And then I couldn't make the the following shoot. They, they picked that somebody else went instead. So I dodged dodged a bullet. I'm not sure the market for you know cycling clothing for a five foot seven. It could have made boy's you shape a different way. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was a bit of a near miss. So yeah, did, did that for a few years. Did the nas- national championships. I think in the uh, in the pro elite, uh, I was 21st twice. Desperate to get in the top 20, but wasn't to be. Rode a B race for in one of the rounds of the World Cup. In Plymouth, I was going quite well until I crashed ah. and broke ribs and other stuff. So, um, so yeah, I did that for a few years, and then I got tired of the travelling, doing it. It's more of a weekend, isn't it? Because once you get down there, you get you yeah. Know, you, the... you sometimes go Friday night, Saturday. You set your bike up, you ride the course, work out which tyres you're going to put on, race Sunday, drive home. You know, unpack before you know you're getting ready for for the working week. Mm. Then the job started uh, in, in in Bolton's. Uh, marketing manager, the marketing director of, of K2 and the, the Burn Group, which was a, a small PLC. So I didn't really have the time to do it. I suppose I could have made the time, but um, I think I just, uh, just fatigue for doing it. Um, yeah, so it's full on. And plus, you're making time now anyway, aren't you? So you're still, you're still going? Still going, yeah. I turned uh, turned 50 beginning of the first lockdown and then realised I started, I was telling uh, more and more people about when I was younger and what I used to be able to do and everything. And I think it was the old adage that the older I was getting, the um, the better I was. <laughs> so I thought it's about time I, yeah, just, you know, just, you know, lifestyle stuff with families and, you know, you put a bit of weight on it, I'll be fine, put a couple more pounds on it. So, so yeah, turned 50 and then I spent a year lose, losing weight and getting into shape. Then got myself a coach for doing uh, triathlon. So first race was, first race was interesting. I thought I was used to swimming in open water, even with a wetsuit on. So I so I dived in off the pontoon uh, at Blenheim Palace, um, all eager to get a good result. And um, suddenly, just the water, just the, how cold the water was, it just hit hit my body. So I had to tread water for a couple of minutes whilst the rest of the, all the rest of my over fifties age group disappeared <laughs> down the lake. Let's go and try and try and catch him up afterwards. And then um, second event, I got hit by a car from behind. Oh, no. I quite a rate of knots at Stratford, so punctured lung and, and ribs and all sorts of stuff. Oh, wow. So not, not to be deterred, things got a little bit, little bit better after that. So gave up on the swimming and take, uh, just, just to do with the, um, just with the cold. You know, I wasn't enjoying the swim element. Loved the running, loved the cycling bit. Standing around at sort of half seven in the morning in a wetsuit, waiting to you know, waiting to start your race, then getting in the water, then waiting for the other age groups to go before you. And some of, them, some of the places I've swam, you, you can't see anything in the water whatsoever. Oh. And it's full of reeds. So sometimes your feet get tangled up and stop, stop pulling at you. One, one quick story, the last one I did do, was trying to qualify for the um, World Championships. Um, got out of the water, really, really dizzy, which is quite common. Anyhow, I thought, right, okay, bit dizzy but I just get my head in gear here I've got one opportunity here to try and you know try and do something so busy trying to take off half your wetsuit as you as you're running along trying to multitask got to got to where the, the bike racks were where you take your wetsuit off you drop it and you you know you, you run out with your bike and everything 
I was that dizzy, I fell over into a whole rack of bikes. Oh no, took them all out. So I had to go and put all the bikes back, sit down, <laughs> take the wetsuit off, and then then try and... Um, <laughs> we laughing. Yeah. So literally, it was probably, uh, probably Laurel and Hardy. It's literally there's thousands and thousands of bike, pounds worth of bikes there. I know, that, that always fascinates me though, because I thought, who looks after those bikes? Have you, you never attempted to do an event and your bike is gone? Uh, no, because you need your, um, they only let you in with your race number. Right, okay. So there is security. Yeah, there was, there was that's always there. fascinated me. I'm sort of thinking, who's watching these bikes? Yeah. Because always... you could ultimately jump on another bike and go, oh, that was better than mine. I'll take that. Oh, uh, you can, but at my height, there's not that many small <laughs> enough. So, um, so yeah, that was that. Then it, so yeah, drop the, drop the swim and doing duathlon now. Right. I'm a, you know, I used to, I did a lot of running before I did my cycling. So it's, it's almost like a complete circle. So Seven weeks time, I'm off to a qualified second for the Europeans in my age group. And then I've also qualified for the World Championships uh, in Ibiza end of end of April. Fantastic. So at the moment, I'm busy trying to shed a kilo and a half before um, before the racing starts. We always talk about that with, with cycling. Everyone, uh, you know, everyone that's into sort of cycling understands that it costs thousands of pounds to drop grams sometimes, when sometimes it's a lot cheaper to leave it off yourself. It is. Well, we did have the financial advisor here um, last week. My wife and I went through, you know, time what your plans are and you know, what's the house worth and all the stuff that you do when a pension advisor sits there. He said, well, Ian, how much your bike's worth? Mm. There was a very, very long pause. <laughs> <laughs> did your wife know? <laughs> yeah, she had an idea. An idea. Yeah. yeah. That's no, that's truth. That's truthful. Right. She knows what, it, what it's all worth. So, yeah, there's a few, bit there, a few bits there. And it's a very light carbon frame. Yeah, there's carbon frames, disc wheels, all sorts of stuff. Even um, even aer- special aerodynamic racing suits that right. are designed in wind tunnels. So some of the stuff I've got has been, you know, wind tunnel tested and everything. I've even I've even done a little bit of work in a virtual wind tunnel to get more aerodynamic. You know, things like that. So it all gets quite um, all gets quite serious. So would you argue you're fitter now than you were when you were a semi pro? Probably not quite as fit, not quite as fit, but fitter than most fifty. Yeah, yeah, probably. And it's, one thing it has done is cost a fortune in clothes. <laughs> so I've got a thirty-two inch waist, so I lost some weight. That's bragging, by the way. <laughs> it is yeah. I mean, the local charity <laughs> shop's done great. Went down to thirty. It went down to thirty. About about a twenty-eight inch waist now. Right. Oh wow. You know, so so I dropped dropped twelve kilos. You know, so for for you know a lot of the people in the industry that you know that know me that. You probably can't, or you can't always, you can, you can see when people lost a little bit of weight, but yeah, it just kept on dropping off and without, without, you know, don't get me wrong, still enjoy um, red wine and chocolate, you know, that, you know, within, within moderation, but yeah, it just drops off when you, you're training day in, day out. So how many, how many hours are you training then to sort of get to this level? Do you know, I've not really thought about that. Probably 10 to 15 hours a week. Right. And you've just got to mix that between sort of... Uh, because riding, you know, it, it takes up an hour or so, doesn't it? You're not nipping out for half an hour. Unless you go for a 10 Yeah, ten it's, uh, Sunday, I ran 18.5k. No, I ran 18.5k on Saturday. And then I did a two and a half hour bike ride on Sunday. Right. Um, only because the, the Sunday ride is normally about three and a half hours, though. So it's just trying to make sure it, it fits in around... Uh, first and foremost, family, you know, and needs to obviously fit in around work. Yeah. Um, but obviously being home based the most of it, I, you know, occasionally I take an extended lunch. So I might start really early in the morning, yeah. have a longer lunch, get a training session in, 
that still allows me to work later at night, but also have family time as well in the evening. You know, you hear stories of, you know, people in the 50s taking up sport and getting really quite serious about it, that, you know, all the evenings are consumed. You know, I've got a young family and I, you know, want to spend time with them. So um, they always get excited. You know, I come back after a race with a medal. They think it's because I've won. It's a finisher's medal. Everybody gets it, which I think is great. <laughs> yeah, so all the kids are wandering around looking like Mr. T at the moment. <laughs> Like that. What's your favourite hill around here then? Um, well, born and bred in Lancashire, there's not really, there's not really much here. You know, Clousey's as hills. Yeah, we've got Cleveville, but it's not, it's a bit not short and sharp. It's not. Oh, well, Lecampton, do you nip up there? Yeah, sometimes go over that way. You know, I remember uh, with GM fundraising, we did, we, we went through the Lake District when we did Lands End, John O'Groats. We, we went up Honest, that's one of the tougher passes in the Lake District. And then, of course, when we did Rome to Home. We planned it so that we could cycle at Montbon too, which is very famous in you know, in the cycling world as being a, uh, an epic climb. It's basically this enormous mountain in Provence. And because it's not part of a range of hills, it's typically very exposed, so it's very, very windy Right on there. So at the bottom, you're putting sun cream on. By the time you got to the top, you, you know, you're putting, a, you're putting a jacket on. So, so yeah, all the gym fundraising lot uh, cycled up there, you know, and credit to them because you know some of them were taking two two and a half hours to get up um it's brutal it's it's brutal for a you know professional athletes but yeah around here is relatively flat it's not you know it's not too bad i imagine coming down was quite fast well the side of on two i think most of us are probably touching 55 maybe Mm. even heading towards 60 miles an hour i mean it's it's it's, it's rapid it's rapid your only only worry is that the um uh, this is before disc breaks that the um the bike rims heat up too much and they expand Oh, and then it arrives. And then you get a blowout. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. It was, it's always worth it. I sort of I explained it to my wife. I was like, you can get over 50 miles an hour on a... She's like, can you? It's like, it's, you know, you don't really think about it when you're on a bike, though, do you? You just think about going down. You don't really take in the speed. But if you think 50 miles in a car, yeah, I mean, pretty it's pretty fast. Yeah, some of, the, some of the, the professional cyclists, we do 70, just probably touch, touch 70 miles an hour. And all you've got is a bit of Lycra. Yeah. And a, and a helmet. Yeah, and this is what I've thought about it. I've been in that situation where I've been going down a hill fast and you sort of think there's a motorbike that can go past you and they've got full levers on, they've got, you know. Yeah. And they're, they're sort of only supposed to be going up to 70 miles an hour. So it, it's sort of, I was sort of thinking, who's, who's more crazy, the motorcyclist or me, you know, on a bike? Cyclists. Definitely cyclists. Yeah. And you've had injuries as well and you still kept going, which says it all. Yeah, yeah, a few injuries. Not, not too, touch wood, not too many. Not too many. I think the worst thing is usually gravel rash, because mm. it you know, it tends to it just sticks to your clothes. So you know you get out of bed aching, having got a bit of gravel rash from your you crash at the weekend, and you you get out of bed and the bedding comes with you. You got to peel it off. <laughs> it's like separating Velcro. <laughs> do you ever do mountain biking or anything? Uh, that's what I did. Yeah, that's what I did in my uh, that's my late twenties. Right, that. that was mountain biking. Yeah. Oh wow. Right in the yeah, in the quite a big sport then. I was on, t- you know, I was yeah, it was yeah, yeah. I was into it then, but I found I don't know about you, but road cycling, you get all the speed, less of the getting stuck in a rut. Yeah, it wasn't cool then, though, was it? No, it wasn't cool. No, you, you couldn't know, do it. Mountain bike was was you know, where it was all at. Would you argue now that road cycling is a bit more cool because of? I think it just yeah. It's I mean mountain bike is almost going to maybe although well, the advent of some of the 
e-bikes and everything else it's opened up a new market for it true yeah a lot of people have said that they've now invested in one and they can go up and down a hill twice in the same time it used to take them to climb once and then come back down so and i saw that as quite a benefit because cycling has become quite trendy that's like mm. a new golf yeah i suppose it has you had any cycling meetings you know everyone used to have golf meetings oh right yes yeah. that's usually done in a cafe yeah do half your rides you know uh, a couple of espressos, piece of cake, and off you go. Like um, the cafe ride with, uh, it's on YouTube, isn't it? I would say this conversation has gone a bit like GCN, hasn't it? Yeah, it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Back onto branding. For people out there that are sort of in between personal branding and their sort of company branding, or they're sort of a mix of the two, what would you start with? Or would you go both? I think, I think it's, it completely depends on the business and the figurehead. You know, if if the business is in the right place, and the, and the you know, and maybe the markets are the embryonic or growing or evolving, then you can make a, a managing director or a sales marketing director. You, you can make them a, not only a figurehead for the business, but for the sector. You know, over the years we've had various spokespeople in the industry speaking about various, you know various things, you know, legislative ch- you know changes and things like that. So personal brandings can work very well, but it needs to be a figurehead that's very need to have it stability that that person's going to be around for years and years to come yes that works really well you know you don't have to think about you know figureheads you know richard the obvious ones you know things like richard branson things like that a strong figurehead you can you can really harness that i'm I'm particularly looking at you know pr here You, you can make a big difference and if there's an evolving if there's an evolving industry and a lot of the marketing content's just hidden behind the company we're forgetting the fact that everything's delivered by people. Yeah. You know, faceless, you've got to be careful with a faceless brand because you can sometimes be portrayed as being a bit aloof, but having something that's a bit more people driven does make a difference. I think. Yeah. No, no, you know, it gives a, it gives a brand a bit of personality behind it. Yeah. You know, rather than being just another brand, you know, it's, it, and it's something, it's a little bit easier in this industry because we've got specialist companies that, making specialist products so you can make them spokes spokespeople you know i've got we've got a couple of campaigns we're going to launch this year for a couple of clients that are going to be a little bit different to what we what we see elsewhere not just just be different or disruptive but because we feel that the uh, the client their respective business and the market that they're in would benefit from it yeah makes sense so you know the industry is, is all about personalities and you know until we're all replaced by robots, that's something that it re- it's the whole people element of, of marketing that you know we sometimes forget about. We're very consumed about the product, but you know who the you know who, who's the figurehead behind the business and what's his vision. Makes sense. Over your time, you've seen social media sort of pop up from nowhere. So at the very start of your journey, I suppose it was you were before Facebook and everything, weren't you? So you got the website going. And then Facebook and everything came in to take over and do what it did. How have you seen it affect the brands that you work with? Um, I think it's different for different businesses. Again, I sound like a politician <laughs> dodging, dodging, dodging a bullet. <laughs> it's like, it's um, there's a lot of companies within the industry that do social media very well. Um, you know, everything's tagged. Um, you know, there's, there's engaging content. You know, you. you you have stuff that doesn't look stale, so it, it it keeps fresh. It's very challenging social media to make sure it, it you know it can look 
a bit samey same if you're not careful. So it needs to be fresh and engaging. Um, I think the understanding needs to be what what it actually does as a communications yeah. channel. So we see a print advert. We've got a matter of seconds to read the headline, look at the creativity and maybe shape an opinion. Look at a, a strong piece of editorial content then you're going to get people engaged for a lot longer so you can really start to change people's perceptions of your brand the social media by its very nature you, you're grabbing people for a matter of seconds unless they're watching video content so it's just i think it's just trying to balance it i don't think you can hang your whole marketing mix on social media i think it's there to supplement other communications channels so that if you've had an article in a particular magazine then you want to retreat it or or reuse it through your through, through your own social. It does give brand a personality as well. I think social, but it's um, the specialist you know companies that have come out and and do social strategies for business businesses. But it's I think it's it, it's really part of the whole communications mix. Yeah, you know I keep mentioning PR because I still think PR arguably is the the tool that probably really starts to shape brands. You know in the industry. Still need to supplement it with advertising and things like that and other activities. But, you know, I think if you look at all the strong brands and success stories in this industry over the years, a lot of them, probably most of them, if not all of them, have had a really strong PR campaign behind it. Powerful. I think someone has learned something there. So, uh, sounds like reading off a script, actually. <laughs> you know, you never know. So, uh, that's quite a journey you've had. Now, come, now's the time for three questions. First one, in the whole of that journey, is there a low point that sticks out for you? I think the only real low point, I'm never really one to be that retrospective. I think the, the low point was when we all hit COVID to begin with. Obviously, you've got your worries, as, you know, as, a, as a husband, you know, father and all, and all your friends, you're worried about all that and, you, and your loved ones. But as an industry, it's the first time ever that we've, we've, we've had a potential huge catastrophe where we didn't know what was what was going to be left of the industry at the end of it mm. you know, had no idea what was you know so you were worried about your you worried about your clients their businesses their employees everybody else associated with it you know we suddenly you know it was a so it, it was suddenly that a moment in time where we started to it's the whole idea of about love thy neighbor you know you, you thought about the implications of, of everybody involved in the industry about how they were going to cope with it. Are they going to get ill? You know, we all know of people that, you know, passed away, you know, within the industry throughout COVID. So there was that bit that it's a great unexpected, you know, you can make marketing plans, you can make everything else, but you cannot account for a global pandemic. And then subsequently there's, you know, Brexit supply issues and everything else that's gone on afterwards. But I think, yeah, first, first COVID, you were just worried for everybody's welfare, you know, ultimately. Yeah. So that'd probably be a, be a low point, you know. Thankfully, you know there have there have been you know we have lost a few people, which I think is is very very sad for for all those concerned. On, on a on a on a more macro level, you know, we look at where the industry is now. Actually, it's not in a, not in a bad place. We've probably overtraded. We've had accelerated consumer demand, which is starting to slow down a bit now. But generally, it's not in a bad you know not in a bad place. Yeah. Um, you asked me the high point, weren't you? I am. So the flip side of that point. is there a high point that sticks out? Is there a high point? I actually still get genuinely excited when I start a new project with a client. So we've got a couple of projects with new clients starting off now. So that bit, I still get a real buzz. 
you know, you do a lot of background work before you even start putting a proposal together and get really quite excited by the project. You know, so there's, there's, there's quite a few things to, quite a few new projects that we're, you know, rolling out this year. So you, you generally get excited by about the new stuff. But, you know, same too with the existing clients. You know, you hear their success stories. Yeah, we've grown again. You know, we've had a record month, everything else that goes on. So, so that the highs are probably just quite regular, really. Yeah, yeah. It's, all, it's all positive stuff. You know, if, if there's negative stuff, then, you know, you deal with negative stuff. But yeah, there's plenty, plenty of highs as we go along. So, you know, just got to keep on doing what I'm doing. Brilliant. Like I said before, I'm unemployable now, so <laughs> got to make <laughs> it work. That's it, that's it. Yes. Last question. If you had to spend two weeks on a desert island with someone from within the fenestration industry, who would it be? I forgot you were asked me that. <laughs> I'll tell you who it'd be. It'd be Robert Tiroff. The reason being, he's a time-served uh, joiner and carpenter. Right. So I don't mind doing the cooking. I'll fish and hunt and do all that sort of stuff. He'd be able to build a sofa and beds and probably build a um, build a unit to, to sleep in. Brilliant. Very practical. I like so, that. So, um, yeah, being a bit practically minded there. So, um, yeah, from that point of view, the only, other, the only thing I'd probably need is somebody to work out how to um, distill... Um, alcohol but, um, <laughs> but there we go but yeah I thought somebody practically minded yeah no that makes sense Ian thank you very much for your time today no thank you very much and you're welcome back anytime keep up the good work it's an open invitation so we can check on you uh, later on and see how you're getting on so uh, all the best lovely thank you Richard cheers Ian take care that was a great episode with Ian I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did if you'd like to hear more podcasts like this one consider subscribing otherwise thank you for listening Until next time.